Leadership is about people that are around us. Leadership is about listening. Leadership is about learning. Leadership is about, you know, ideas. It's not about managing another person. Learn how to be a good one if you can. Try your best to kind of get in touch with all of your own shortcomings so that they don't get in the way of everybody else's success around you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides Inaugural Podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis. Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I am so excited for this week's episode. Today, I have the honor of welcoming a guest onto the podcast who I consider to be study abroad royalty, the one and only Cynthia Banks. A seasoned entrepreneur and passionate international educator, Cynthia's insights never fail to inspire, enlighten, and motivate me, and I can't wait to share her with our listeners today. Cynthia's impact on education abroad over the course of her career has been nothing short of extraordinary, and her contributions to our field have been both broad and deep. Cynthia founded Global Links Learning Abroad in 1990 at age 25. Global Links Learning Abroad went on to become a highly successful education abroad organization, providing life-changing opportunities to over 30,000 students between 1990 and 2014. Under her leadership, Globalinks helped pioneer making study abroad in Australia, New Zealand, and Asia accessible to American college students. It's not an exaggeration to say that all of us today who support students studying abroad in the Asia-Pacific region stand on the shoulders of Cynthia and the team of giants she assembled during her time at the helm of Globalinks. But Cynthia's influence goes beyond just Australia and New Zealand. When she founded Globalinks in 1990, the majority of study abroad participants were women, as they are today. But the individuals in the international education leadership positions were largely men. As one of the first senior female leaders in education abroad, Cynthia disrupted the status quo with panache, style, and business savvy. Thankfully, our field looks quite differently today, especially at the leadership level. For instance, World Strides Higher Education is led by Jennifer Acosta, who is our general manager and one of my personal heroes, but we're not alone. Several other international education organizations are today led by women as well. It's hard to imagine this being possible without Cynthia's trailblazing efforts. Global Links Learning Abroad was sold in 2014, which allowed Cynthia the space to innovate and make a difference to our field once again. In addition to Global Links, Cynthia is the president and the founder of the Foundation for Global Scholars, a nonprofit formed in 2006 to support scholarships for study abroad students. She is the founder and CEO of New World Vistas, which provides consulting services for small to medium-sized business groups in the areas of entrepreneurial leadership skills, marketing, and business strategy. Cynthia is the faculty director for global initiatives in the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder. Cynthia is the co-founder of the Global Leadership League, which is focused on the development and training of global education leaders. Wow. I can't imagine how she does it. Cynthia is the embodiment of dedication, passion, and vision. But how can Cynthia's story, unique perspectives, and diverse career experiences inform our work as international educators? We're going to discuss that and a whole lot more. I'm so excited for this conversation. Stay tuned 
you will definitely want to hear what she has to say today. Cynthia Banks, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Zach. It's very exciting to have an opportunity to see you again and to talk about these important things. To kick us off, I'd like to ask you to please give us a brief overview of how you got your start in international education and how that led you to where you are today. Well, like many early international educators, we never got trained in this field. Um, I went to Australia in 1989 after I had finished my undergraduate degree, and I was accompanying a professor with a study abroad group. Uh, I have to say it was something that was exciting to me to do after a degree. I don't know that I knew where I was going with that. But when I was in Australia, uh, the university asked me if they thought, if I thought students would ever want to study in Australia. Think back in 1989. Students were not studying abroad in Australia, and the internet did not exist. So we went back to the United States with a small grant of money, and we found a huge market gap for kids wanting to go to Australia. So we started AustraLearn, um, and that was the organization that we grew into a global study abroad organization. And I'd love to hear more about those early days of, of AustraLearn. What was it like? What, what were your first programs? How did you get your first students? Give us a peek into what that was like. I have to say, I was a, I took a business education program in my undergraduate degree, so I had some sense of how to put an organization together, but there's nothing like actually really doing it, is there? So we had no money. Um, we had no staff. Uh, we had no idea what it would take to put students on airplanes and fly them overseas. So I suppose we just kind of took one piece at a time. We really thought about what students would need when they got to Australia, what kind of an experience we wanted them to have. We formed very good partnerships with the Australian universities over the years. I, to this day, probably can almost remember the name of the first two students I ever sent abroad because I knew everything about them. And because I built the business kind of from the ground up, I knew operationally everything that went into it. So as we continued to grow the organization, it was easier for me as a leader because I had literally done every job there was to do in the organization. From admissions to being out on the road recruiting students to being a resident director overseas. I mean, it was me. So I pretty much did all those jobs, you know, and I had to figure out how to, you know, get them all done in one day, which was very challenging at times. I'd love to hear from you about some of the, I should say, misconceptions or, or perceptions of students at that time about study abroad in Australia, New Zealand. I I think back to talking to students then, and all anybody could think of was how far away it was. And they'd say, I can't can't go that far. It's so far away. And so just getting them to think about the airplane ride, I think, was one of the bigger things to do. Because Crocodile Dundee was out, they were very excited about animals of Australia. They were very excited about the landscapes. And so getting them interested in, in that part wasn't difficult. Australia and New Zealand presented such an amazing opportunity for English-speaking students, which if we're not taking languages in college as a requirement, um, all of a sudden we could go down and take science classes. You know, we could take engineering classes and we could do them in a semester format for, for study abroad. And so I think that's where the greatest opportunity was to really bring Australia in particular up to the forefront. You know, you were at the vanguard of the explosive growth that our field experience in the 1990s and 2000s. What would surprise our listeners to know about study abroad during that time? 
I think back to all the things, it's kind of like when people get so excited, we have electricity these days, and there was a time when there wasn't electricity. But I recall in the 1990s, financial aid was not available for students to take on study abroad. And think how many students would not be able to even go abroad if they hadn't been able to take their Stafford loan or their Pell Grants or those things. So we have leaders like Nancy Stubbs to thank for creating these policies around that where we could transfer the financial aid from the universities onto the programs. I mean, back then, you know, you say we put them on dummy course credits on home campus to keep them enrolled. I mean, that was incredibly innovative at that time. And yet those policies and procedures are what universities still use today to ensure that students have funding to go. So that's one thing that I think I, I look back and I remember that actually happening. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a dot in the wool road warrior, like many of us in our field. What was it like to recruit students during that time, during the early days? I'd like to say that a lot has changed, but, you know, I can't think recently I was on a campus and they had a study abroad fair and it looked exactly like it did in 1990. We all have our little tablecloths. We all have our little materials. You know, everyone would stand on the plaza trying to get students' attention. I, I don't think much has changed in that regard, other than university partnerships have really expanded as they became more familiar with providers and understanding how to pick the things that really were important to them for their students. You know, finding ways to get that curriculum integration to make sure that the students could take the credit. So we weren't you know, sometimes students in the early days would walk up and they were like, what is this? Can I go abroad? I don't know how that's going to work. Well, now we have all those answers. But I think predominantly it looks almost the same as it did in 1990. You know, I was at a study abroad fair earlier in the week and I had a blow-up kangaroo and an inflatable <laughs> koala, uh, which I think is a, a legacy of, of, of global links. <laughs> oh, I love and that. it still brings students to the table. It, st it still works. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Put a stuffed animal out too. That usually helps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time, if you had access to a time machine, what advice would you give to 25-year-old Cynthia Banks when she was just starting out? Like so many times when we get older and we look back, I mean, there are things that I wish I would have known. I think my journey would have been different if I would have known those things. Um, being an entrepreneur, you have to get comfortable with what you don't know. Um, I think you have to get comfortable with the 80-20 rule, which means I'll just do it up to 80%. And if it's kind of working, let's just roll it and see how it goes. So I wouldn't change any of those things because I think an entrepreneur always has to be a bit fast moving. So if I knew more, I think I would move slower, if that makes sense. I'd be scared. I wouldn't know what to do. But I think I would say to also myself, patience, you know, be kind to yourself I mean, recognize that all the things you don't know at 25 does not dictate what you will ever know in your life. Uh, I would be as courageous, I would be as brave, I would be as hopeful as I was, um, you know, back when I was 25. So I suppose that's the best way to answer that question. How have you seen our field evolve over time? Overall, we just are well more a part of higher education than we ever were when I started. Uh, we were begging for people to believe that study abroad was an integral part of somebody's educational experience. And these days, I find that universities really do have a sense of respect and understanding. I know there's still battles on campuses. We get restructured into a thousand different departments and nobody knows where we belong. But I think overall, I would say that we've done a great job professionalizing our field. 
organizations like NAFSA, the Forum on Education Abroad, have done all the right things to fight those politics and the policy battles. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really happy to say that I see it as, as well more foundational now than it was when I started. You've been at the managerial helm of multiple businesses over the course of your career. What are some of the observations that you have about what makes organizations and people successful that could serve as tips for our international education colleagues? Well, as we all know, it's like kind of wrestling an octopus. Um, there are a lot of things that go on in organizations. So I don't think it's ever any one exact thing that helps make organizations successful. But I would say that still the CEO, the person in charge of an organization or a team, really has the keys um, to why somebody should want to work there. I think they hold the keys to how people feel about the value of the work that's being done. They are the gatekeeper for tasks, um, for opportunities. I still think that the leader plays a massive role into the success of organizations. And when I've consulted for places, I can tell you, I can see when somebody has a bad boss or somebody that's not responding well. And it really breaks down a very important structure. So I guess my advice is if you're the leader of anything, I mean, learn how to be a good one if you can. Uh, try your best to kind of get in touch with all of your own shortcomings so that they don't get in the way of everybody else's success around you. Well said. Thank you for sharing that. I'd love to dig into the Global Leadership League a bit more. For our listeners who may not yet be familiar, what is the Global Leadership League and how did it come about? Global Leadership League was created by 10 amazing women in the field. Uh, how fortunate we are that we all could take some time to get together and envision a space where we could bring training and learning to all levels of an organization. From our recognition, even though we were at those senior levels, organization can only afford to send so many people to these amazing conferences, these amazing places in the world. And so everybody else left at home is oftentimes devoid of these great networking opportunities. So we said, wouldn't it be great if we had an online space for all levels of an organization to meet each other and to learn early on in their career? Number one, I think they'll stay in the field longer, which would be great. They'll also commit to learning about the field more deeply. And then we can just strengthen all of the things that we're working on. So we do a lot of fun programming. Most of it's very real and practical give people a lot of chance to talk and to bring real world problems to these programs that we offer. And we do all of that at what we think is an accessible uh, entry rate, you know, $75 for an individual or $1,500 for an entire organization with unlimited memberships. So let's not make cost something that keeps people from having the opportunity. I can think of many colleagues here at World Strides uh, who have taken advantage of opportunities provided through the league. So I so appreciate the service that, that the league provides. How can members best utilize the group's resources and how can colleagues get involved? Well, joining the league is very easy. These days, these great tech platforms, you can join with literally five blanks filled in and a credit card. So that's, that's step one. The other thing is to, uh, you'll get invited every month to everything that we offer. So you can choose what to attend. And if you end up missing it, we tend to record most everything. So you can log into our website and watch it at a later time. I would encourage people to think about bringing their organizations 
Because in many ways, the more people we can have around the table to have these conversations, the more robust will be the solutions and the opportunities we can give each other. One of our cornerstone programs is um, our mentor circle program, where we put about five you know, people that don't know each other together for a four-month discussion on a very specific topic area with a workbook that helps you kind of go through discussions with each other. And it has been so wildly successful. We have people that come back and, and literally do it every single time it's offered. They just pick a different topic or a workbook. So it's a great way to network and to meet other people. And, and that doesn't take much time, maybe an hour every other month. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about, given what we were discussing earlier about how technology has evolved since the 1990s, how some of this maybe wouldn't be possible without the technology platforms we have today. So I, I think the league is really leading into that virtual space. Thank you. We're trying to keep up with everybody else. It's uh, it's a lot to absorb most days. So what's on the horizon for the Global Leadership League? Are there any initiatives that you and other board members are working on that have you particularly excited? Well, back in 2019, we were planning our first retreat where we could take people uh, you know, out somewhere else and kind of spend a couple days together. But we all know that that wasn't able to be done in 2020 and beyond. So we're really excited to be offering our first retreat starting next spring. Um, and it will happen after the Forum on Education Abroad Conference for just a couple days. Other things we're excited about, we have a new set of workshops coming up online, uh, three hours, you know, still in an online environment. And we're able to do those also globally. So we can offer them in different time zones, you know, one that fits Australia, Asia, and then we'll do it again for Europe, and then we'll do it for the U.S., I mean, the league right now has members from over 40 countries that have joined. But think how hard it is to get all those people in the same room at the same time. It's very challenging. So we're still working on how to best serve all those people around the world. If there are any listeners out there who would like to advocate to a supervisor or to a boss or to a leader about the, the value of joining the Global Leadership League, what would your advice be to them? How can they sell this? I think all organizations have costs to consider. I'm going to just put this in business terms, Zach. How's that? Here's, here you go. So it's very expensive to hire and to train people. It's really one of the most expensive costs that an organization has. And so organizations want to keep people. They want to keep them involved. And that's twofold. One is the person has to do the job you've assigned them, but they also have to want to be engaged and committed to the kind of work your organization is doing. So with the Global Leadership League, at a group membership, literally for $15 a person, the way it works out for most people, you can give them access to something that will give them joy in meeting other people, give them excitement to learn about their job, give them a bigger space to learn about, and in many ways create that, that wonderful commitment to global ed that most of us that have been around these many years, we feel it all the time. It's why we all do these jobs the way we do them. So that's my pitch to organizations. Cynthia, why is mentorship important in our field? Our field is very complex. I can't imagine being able to read one book and somehow figure out how to do the majority of the jobs. And as we all know, uh, theory to practice doesn't often translate completely well. So when we have mentorship, we're learning about people that have been down these roads before. We've seen in real life ways, how does this work? It'd be like being a CEO and getting advice on how to be a CEO from a, you know, somebody that was your culinary cook. 
I don't know. You've got to get somebody who's been down the roads that you're going down before. And mentorship is a great way to just tap into all of that knowledge. Thank you for sharing that. You know, one thing that's always clear uh, to me, Cynthia, when I talk to you is that you have a true entrepreneurial mindset. How can our listeners bring innovation and a fresh perspective into their work, regardless of their official title or role? Just, I just love that question because, you know, entrepreneurship is around us all the time. Um, most of the time, we forget to be thinking entrepreneurially. We just go through the motions and we do the job we're given and we just stop thinking, you know, in an innovative way. But oftentimes, I always say, you know, entrepreneurship is really trying to get into the mind of the person that you're serving. That's where it starts. In business, we call that a customer. I suppose in education, it's a customer. But I think it's spending time talking to the students that we are trying to get to go on study abroad programs. We have to understand them so fully that our minds then can go to the things that will serve the need that they have. And the foundational aspect of entrepreneurial thinking is basically fulfilling a need that someone has. So one of the ways is just be more inquisitive in the job you have. Spend more time asking the students on the phone or students that you see in person questions. Ask advisors questions. I think that's where that innovation comes from, is that knowledge. You founded your first company at age 25. Impressive. Lots of folks struggle with imposter syndrome before stepping up to a leadership opportunity, in particular, young women. What advice do you have for our listeners around this topic? I love, I love the imposter syndrome. Uh, even at my advancing age, I think there are still many things I have imposter syndrome <laughs> about. So uh, first of all, we acknowledge that probably men and women both face imposter syndrome at various levels and stages of their life. We say, yes, that's a real thing. We're not going to feel bad about it. We're going to try and understand, I think, where it comes from. What happens, though, with imposter syndrome is that it typically is one of those barriers that keeps us from doing something that we either underneath believe we could do or that we probably have the bravery to do. It, it's one of those barriers that keeps us from taking action. And so what I would say about imposter syndrome is the first thing is acknowledge that it's real. It's that part of you that says, I'm frightened. I'm not sure I do know. And what happens if I'm wrong, right? Nobody wants to be wrong. And then the second piece is to step beyond that and say, I won't know if I can do anything until I go try. So apply for a job if you have 50% of the skills that are listed. Put your hand up for a volunteer role. NAFSA is wonderful in terms of volunteer roles that you can start in at, you know, kind of simpler levels and then grow yourself up into new things. And in many ways, I just think you kind of just got to step around it, you know? I know that many of our listeners today are thinking about their own professional journeys and how they'd like to progress from where they are today. Some of the progression can start before a new role begins. How can we find ways to lead from any level? I get when I always think of this question, Zach, I often think about, well, when we say lead, what is it we mean? And most people use the word leadership and being in charge as a manager kind of like synonymously, and that's not always true. You know, leadership is about people that are around us. Leadership is about listening. Leadership is about learning. Leadership is about, you know, ideas. It's not about managing another person. So when we think about growing into being a leader, having leadership before we're in charge of something, 
I would say, how often does the person go talk to their uh, person above them or the person they report to? Just about challenges of the greater business that they're in. How interested is the person in what's going on around them at the much broader level? Or are they just only focused on one little small area? I think a leader can look at people even in a just a team structure and see where somebody else is struggling that they could help. They could learn about where other people are facing opportunities that they could kind of join on and maybe take on a little extra project role or something. There are many ways to get involved with leadership. I just don't want to mistake that for being in charge of something else. Well, in our field, we're so lucky to have many different avenues for folks to serve on committees or in leadership roles through organizations like NAFSA and the Foreman Education Abroad. Uh, I'd love for if you can comment on that as well. Sure. Well, let me just start with the Global Leadership League. For instance, we have just now appointed 15 new leaders at the Global Leadership League who are going to help us bring the programs to all the members we want to do this year. And we just sent a call out to everybody that was a member. And people have come from all levels of an organization, from the administrative assistant in an office, all the way up to someone who is the dean of international education at a university. And, and so just watching for those opportunities and understanding, you know, finding out what the requirements are, that's easy to do from various organizations. NAFSA usually has a, you know, formulated structure for how to get involved in your region. Easier to maybe do it a little bit closer to home to begin with. My journey was very interesting. I started out as the regional treasurer. Actually, I was a Colorado state rep, and then I was a regional treasurer, and then I was the chair of the Education Abroad Committee. And then I went on to do, I I was a mentor in the NAFTA Academy. I trained for the MDP people. And then I was on the NAFTA Board of Directors. Now, that last bigger appointment didn't happen on day one. You know, I wasn't applying to be on the board. That's a very big, big role to have. So I just started learning about the organization from a grassroots level. And I think the regional piece for NAFTA in particular is easy to do. But the forum has all kinds of committees you can join. One of your passions is developing and mentoring women leaders. How did that become an area of focus for you? And how has your own leadership style evolved over time? In our field, you really alluded to this in the introduction, you know, our field is, is all a lot of women. And while they've always served in education, you'll, you know, by nature, see more women going into education than other industries, so to speak. Seeing them in leadership roles is super important. And I don't, in my mind, see that it should be all women or all men or all non-binary. I think that what we're looking for is diversity. We're looking at diversity around the board table. We're looking at diversity of leadership of an organization. I think there should be older leaders and younger leaders. I think if we want to serve these customers that we're trying to serve, we have to have diversity around us to create that. My passion for women, I, I guess I was a young woman leader, Uh, I remember some of those barriers I was trying to cross. So I guess in my mind, I just really wanted to respond to that feeling I had when I started, was wanting to help women leaders. What is your advice for the leaders in international education today, regardless of their gender? Well, if you're going to go into international education today, I think you have to be aware that it's not one job, it's probably about 12 jobs. So... (laughs) (laughs) Think about how to build your skill sets up in a way that can help you be successful for these jobs that are actually quite large. 
you know, we say we're an advisor in, you know, like a study abroad organization. Oh my goodness. Pretty soon before you know it, we have to know about finance. We have to know about family dynamics. We have to know about diversity of these students and what they need when they go overseas. We have to know about health concerns. I mean, wow. I just think it's a lot for people. So my advice is if you're going to go into global ed, fantastic, but I don't think you'll ever stop needing to learn something. What are some examples of how women in the workplace can lift each other up, seek out and build community, and take steps to make workplaces more inclusive? I would say this applies to all, all genders. We, if you think about it, we don't spend a lot of time oftentimes bringing people up around us. So many times we're really concerned about our own jobs. You know, we're frightened about our own space. Maybe we don't even have time to think about people around us. But one of the easiest things you can do is that when someone is in a meeting and they say something, maybe you agree to it, maybe you like it. You know, Michelle Obama kind of coined this in the White House. But this whole idea of just echoing the importance of what somebody said. Because occasionally, we all find that we've said something. Maybe we didn't say it right. Maybe people weren't listening. And they just kind of pass over that. But Mm -hmm. we can stop and say, hey, you know what Zach said? That was really great what he said. And then before you know it, more people are acknowledging people in the room. And that will help raise more people to being seen. As a follow-up to that, what advice would you have uh, that's specific to the men in our field? How can men be allies and lift up the women that surround us? Like I've said many times, the acknowledging that there is a role to play as an ally. We in our life don't always get everybody else's experience. I don't know what it's like to be a man, and they don't know what it's like to be a woman. And to that point, I don't also know everything about non-binary genders or other things I need to know about. Creating empathy is I am willing to learn what your position in the world is, not I just automatically need to know. So for men to be allies to women and to other things going on, they have to agree that they may not fully see things from a woman's perspective. So ask and learn is one of the first things. And then the other piece of it is to just have that sense of equality in all things that you do. Um, This world is not going to survive if one group's trying to win. It's just never meant to be that way. So I think having some sense of where people's strengths are, bring people up regardless of any other biases you might bring to the table. And the truth of it is we all have biases and you just have to decide where to learn about those. And then, as I said, put them aside. We touched upon the importance of mentorship a bit earlier. I'd love to hear about your own experiences, Cynthia. Did you have mentors? Oh my goodness. Yes, I had great mentors. Early on when you're 25 years old and you know nothing about the field, I recall people, I had a little office at Colorado State University, and there was some wonderful women that worked in that hallway that had nothing to do with my operation, but they were just working in the same space. And they would come give me the greatest advice just about work and about the university and about how things got put together. So Through the years, I have mentors. I still have mentors who help me learn about my next phases of my career, the things I want to be doing. So I would encourage everyone, don't think of a mentor as a lifelong, this person's going to have to advise me on everything. More importantly, think about how many mentors can you actually have? You can have quite a lot. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, You know, circling back to an aspect we touched upon earlier, 
You are a faculty member at the University of Colorado, Boulder, an elite school of business, which means you spend a lot of time with young people who will be the leaders of tomorrow. What are your observations around Gen Z, their strengths, and how you believe they will impact the workplace? Oh, I love Gen Z. You know, one of the things I've, I've enjoyed most, just even in the seven years I've taught, this generation wants to know why. <laughs> why, why are they working where they're working? Why are we doing what we're doing? I need, I need to really understand the purpose of this. So what a great way for organizations to create amazing workplaces where people do have a sense of why are we doing this work? What are we accomplishing? And gosh, global education, I don't think there's anybody that wouldn't get behind the kind of the why of that. The Gen Z, I mean, the people I see in class, they want work to be more than work. Fair enough. You know, we're going to have to find some balance in our lives. And I think they're a great kind of driver of that. I see them as impatient as I was when I was 25. <laughs> so, you know, they want to be promoted in three months. They want to be in charge of something in six months. Like, I, I get the impatience. I don't think that's generational. I think it's just the way we, that's the way we find our motivation early in our life. So I, I see there is still a lot of hope in this world. They're way more informed than I ever was when I was 25. Oh my goodness. Way more informed. Thank you, Cynthia. I just have one more question for you today, my friend. As you think about education abroad heading into 2024, what makes you hopeful? Wow. I am so hopeful. And they always say, as you get older, you should get more, you know, maybe less hopeful, but I think I'm more hopeful today. I continually, continually meet students who have had an overseas experience and their patience and understanding for others is exponentially changed by that experience. And so I, there will always be a role for global education. And I know we do a lot of online stuff and I'm not knocking that, but being in person with other cultures, it will change the world. I hundred percent believe that. So our work is more important today for a whole host of reasons but I think it's just as impactful as it's always been. I can't imagine a better place to end things than right there. Cynthia Banks, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Zach. It was great talking to you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World's Rights colleagues, Lindsay Kelcher and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together. Thank you.